brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Welcome to Brew Crime, a true crime and beer podcast. This is a podcast where we pick a theme, cover a few cases, and pair them with craft beer. Join me, Mike. And me, JT. As we explore the world of crime, conspiracies, or whatever catches our attention. You can find us on social media at BrewCrime or our website, BrewCrime.com. And you can find us on any podcast app at BrewCrime Podcast. Join us as we discuss the horrible crimes that surround us and maybe, eh, probably, not definitely tip a bottle or two back as you do it. Drink with us the second and last Tuesday of every month. The Oracle Network. Hello, I'm Eliza, and welcome to Lead the Lights On, brought to you by the Oracle 3 Network. I know you have tons of options out there to get your true crime and paranormal fix, but you chose this show, and I thank you for that. If you are new to the show, welcome, and if you haven't done so yet, go check out lightsonpod.com for more, including a bio about me, top five episodes, and the show's own web player. I hope you are doing well and are ready for another episode. In 1985, a 19-year-old girl was picked up on a deserted road, handcuffed, shackled, and ghostly pale. The story she told her rescuer and law enforcement was unbelievable. She had been held captive and repeatedly raped by a sexual sadist. But he didn't just violate her sexually. He drained her blood and drank it in front of her. Warning, this episode may contain some triggers, so please listen at your own discretion. Thanksgiving, late November 1985, in Melbar Boulevard County, Florida, something occurred that could have been pulled right out of a horror film. A woman hobbled down the roadway, was passed by two vehicles, maybe more. A motorist stopped to help her. She was 19, nearly nude, handcuffed at her wrists and ankles, and she was filthy and exhausted. The hospital determined that whatever her other injuries were, she was missing between 40 and 45% of her blood. The blood was seemingly withdrawn through several small pin pricks. So what happened to her? Only her story could answer those questions. The young woman was later identified as Kathy Lynn Betty. 
She had been hitchhiking the day before and the man who offered to give her a ride was willing to take her where she needed to go. He said he had to stop off at home first. He invited her in and when she refused, he got into the back seat of the car and choked her to the point of unconsciousness. Kathy awoke to find that she had been tied to a countertop in the kitchen. Her arms and legs had been fully immobilized. A video camera had been set on a tripod along with lights. The man entered and raped her as he videotaped what happened. He then inserted needles into her arms and wrists and carefully began extracting blood. He began to drink it and told her he was a vampire. He then handcuffed her and she was dropped into a bathtub. He returned later for another round of sexual assault and blood extraction. The next morning after a third assault and bloodletting, the man handcuffed Kathy and left her in the bathroom saying he would be back later for further assaults. He threatened her as he did each time he left her in the bathroom by saying if she tried to escape, his brother would come and kill her. After her attacker left the house, Kathy was able to push out of the small bathroom window and crawl to the road. She had been passed by several trucks before someone had stopped. Kathy begged the driver to not take her back to that house. And when she asked where, she told him to remember the certain house. He noted the location, took her home, and called for police and an ambulance. Doctors believed that if she did not escape at that time, she would have died from a further round of blood extraction. Kathy told the police her story, and using the information she gave, a search warrant was served for a man named John Brennan Crutchley whose wife and child were away for the Thanksgiving holiday. Because of Crutchley's dark past, he became the prime suspect. John Crutchley was born October 1st, 1946, to a well-to-do family in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He was a friendless child and preferred to spend most of his time tinkering with electronic gadgets in the basement of his home. His hobby for electronics paid off early when he earned a good amount of money repairing and rebuilding what have been referred to as complex radio and stereo systems before he graduated from high school. He went on to graduate with a bachelor's degree in physics from Defiance College in Ohio in 1970 and then earned a master's degree in engineering administration from George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Before he graduated with his graduate's degree, he was married to his first wife in 1969. He departed from his job at Delco after investigation was made by plant security into missing materials. At that point, he moved to Fairfax County, Virginia in the mid-1970s and subsequently remarried. He worked for several high-tech firms in the D.C. area, including TRW, ICA, and Logicoin Process Systems. At this time, and although it has never been linked directly to Crutchley, several teenage girls disappeared in and around the area. In 1977, seven years after his move to Fairfax County, a 25-year-old secretary, Deborah Fitzjohn, disappeared. 
Crunchley was placed under close scrutiny because he was Fitzjohn's boyfriend and she was last seen alive at the trailer park where Crutchley lived. He was questioned several times for his possible involvement in her disappearance. Nothing came out of the questioning due to the lack of evidence, even after her skeletal remains were found by a hunter in October the following year. Now, two victims that were often associated with Crutchley are the Logan sisters, Catherine and Sheila. In 1975, they were kidnapped as well as raped, which fits Crutchley's MO. For the longest time, their case remained unsolved, but in 2017, a man named Lloyd Welch was charged in their deaths, which he is currently serving time. So if you do look up this case and you see these two young girls attached to the case, just know that they are no longer a part of it, which I actually am pretty interested in covering them possibly next week. Police working on Kathy Betty's case started searching Crutchley's home in hopes of locating evidence that would link him to the crimes. They were able to locate the videotape that would have contained footage of Kathy's rape, as well as the extraction of her blood. However, the camera was partially erased. Crutchley was arrested during the search, which took place at 2.30 a.m. During the first search, photographs of the house were taken at that time. These showed a stack of credit cards several inches thick, as well as several different women's necklaces kept concealed in a closet. He claimed they were the property of his wife, but the fact that they were kept separately indicates that they had special meaning to him and were probably trophies, if not kept as mementos of kills. It's important to note that to this date, he has not been convicted of any killings, despite all logical reasoning. A second search did not turn up those credit cards, nor the collection of women's necklaces that had been noted, but not confiscated by the police during the first search. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. After being contacted by local authorities for his professional input, Robert Riesler, the FBI agent who actually coined the term serial killer, was convinced Crutchley had almost certainly killed before and was what is termed a serial killer of the organized type. It was Riesler who instigated the second search of much wider scope and detailed than was the first. The first had been performed only by local police and they only knew they had a particularly nasty rapist on their hands. Riesler noted that there had been four female bodies found in Brevden County in the previous year, and that unexplained bodies had also been found and missing women reported in Pennsylvania while he lived there. No evidence was found to link these deaths to Crutchley, however. 
as Crutchley was intensely investigated, it was discovered that he was not only into extremely experimental sex, but also that his intensive sexual exploits, in some of which his wife appeared to have participated, had been meticulously recorded. Investigators tracking down these partners mostly were told that these partners had been willing participants in kinky sex, not specified in all cases, but apparently bondage and dominance. However, some of the partners indicated that Crutchley had perhaps taken the bondage and dominance a bit too far, crossing the line into assaults, which had been initially consensual acts, but which began to turn ugly when stop phrases were ignored. At his trial, Crutchley claimed to have been introduced to blood drinking by a nurse in roughly 1970 as a part of a sexual ritual. Still doesn't excuse himself for what he did, by the way. Crutchley, although appearing rather unobstructive and bookish, was said to be exceptionally controlling in his dealings with other people. Crutchley's wife seems to have been his perfect mate at the time that he pleaded guilty to the rape and kidnapping, rather than also being charged with possession of drugs and grievous bodily harm, his wife evidently trying to categorize this affair as nothing more than a little S&M that got out of hand, stated that this had been a gentle rape devoid of any overt brutality. And that is a direct quote from her, by the way. After the trial, she told reporters that she couldn't quite understand the fuss since her husband was just a kinky sort of guy. And I just want to take a moment, like I'm not trying to kink shame anyone or anybody who has those kinds of fetishes, especially since I know people who do it in a safe and loving manner. This guy was not that. If you are ignoring stop phrases when your partner is telling you this is enough, we need to end this scene. You need to follow that. And again, this guy didn't, which that's why he went to assault mode. And I mean, he's messed up anyway, but yeah, that's not okay. Crunchley's initial defense at the time of his arrest was that Kathy Lynn Betty was a Manson girl who had solicited kinky sex from him. The defense also pointed out that Kathy initially did not wish to press charges even after having passed a lie detector test and test which indicated the presence of semen. She was convinced to press charges only after a rape counselor convinced her of her duty to other women. And I know that that's very cringeworthy, especially now, but this was the 1970s and they had different thought mentality. And I know that sounds like an excuse because it shouldn't be because this definitely was the, or at least in my opinion, I felt like the defense was doing a lot of victim blaming and that's not the case. I mean, if someone sexually assaults you or rapes you, you should be able to have all the time that you need to come forward with charges. Like just blows my mind, but that was the decade. Among other things, Crutchley fits the profile of a serial killer of the organized type. These killers collect mementos, which are generally used as props in sexual fantasies, commemorating their murders. Many forensic psychologists believe that serial killers of the organized type are initially driven to kill as a result of a powerful and recurrent sexual fantasy with sadistic themes, 
And many also believe that most of the organized type serial killers may have had not murdered, but rather violent sadistic rape in fulfillment of their fantasy as their initial objective. However, having once killed and escaped arrest, many seem to analyze their realization of their sadistic fantasy and incorporate their successes and eliminate their mistakes. Thus, an addictive fantasy of sexual sadism or sadistic sex becomes a blueprint for subsequent actions. Riesler believed that from the degree of organization of rehearsedness evident at the time of arrest, that one can gain insight into the degree of successful practice of their crimes. Based on that thought by Riesler, Crutchley would appear to have had a long, successful experience with at least sadistic sex, bondage, rape, whether consensual or not, and with extraction of blood from victims. His practice capture of his victims suggests that he had either been out specifically cruising for a victim or habitually carried a ligature to the purpose of choking a person unconscious. The technique of getting behind the victim and then strangling with a ligature suggests that he was practice or had given it substantial forethought. All of this combined with his readiness to videotape the act suggests that this had all been done many times before. His sexual history was established through interviews with former partners and suggests that this may have been his preferred means of sexual gratification, so-called consensual rape with bondage, with the thrill of video recording added. When you add into the mix that Crutchley was found to be in possession at the time of his arrest of a great deal of information, the top secret kind, regarding naval communications information processing and weapons equipment, we see emerging here a portrait of a person who was simply out of control. Crutchley's employer, Harris Corporation, was highly involved with not only NASA research and launch facilities at Cape Canaveral, but also with other naval contractors and subcontractors. It is unknown to what degree Crutchley might have engaged in his sexual escapades aiding and abetting what might have well been a budding career in espionage, or if indeed his sexual escapades might have gotten him drawn into such involvement. Several federal agencies nearly preferred charges of espionage rather than what he actually got. In any case, John Brennan Crutchley, the so-called vampire rapist, was convicted of kidnapping and rape after pleading guilty in June 1986. Riesler predicted in 1992 about the 1989 conviction that Crutchley's 25 to life sentence would result in release as soon as 1998. In fact, Crutchley was released in 1996, two years earlier than that. After 11 years of his sentence, Crutchley was released from Union Correctional Institute in Railford, Florida, for the bereaved county jail for good behavior. He may have been released, but he didn't have anywhere to go. Officials in Fairfax County, Virginia, where his mother lived at the time, did not want him, nor did the people in Marlboro and Melbourne, Florida. He was transferred to the Orlando Probation and Restitution Center, a halfway house where he would undergo counseling and pay restitution even while serving his 50 years of parole. 
Less than a day later, he was arrested again for violating his parole after being tested positive for marijuana. Crutchley denied it at the time, saying inmates blew marijuana smoke in his face. But prosecutors in the subsequent trial showed him confessing to a corrections inspector that he smoked the substance because he was nervous about his impeding release and he thought that the drug would make him relax. This convicted crime violated his parole and resulted in a sentence of life imprisonment to be imposed on Crutchley January 31st, 1997 under the three strikes law. This was his third conviction. On March 30th, 2002, Crutchley died in prison. Correction officials reported on April 2nd, 2002, that he had been found dead in his cell at the Hardy Correctional Institute with a plastic bag over his head. The cause of death reported was asphyxiation. Subsequent reporting around August 1st, 2003 from the Florida Department of Corrections declared that the Florida vampire rapist died of autoerotic asphyxiation. In the media coverage later on, notably American Occult, Crunchley declared that the arbitration of vampirism is pointless, declaring that it's all about the label of the big V and the big V is empty. That's not me. Professor Ramslin notes of Crutchley that there was nothing at all about him which would send dangerous signals to potential victims. Indeed, she states that there was nothing about him that would indicate he was anything but an engineer. Looking into an article from 2002, despite the fact that officials could not link Crutchley to other murders or disappearances I mentioned earlier, one of the women, Patty Voletsky, 29 of Mims, Florida, also bereaved county, disappeared while hitchhiking on March 15, 1985. Her identification card was found in Crutchley's desk at Harris Corporation. He also had her birth certificate and pictures of her family. Now, while I can't legally say that he did it and that this was definitely evidence of him possibly abducting and murdering this woman, but it does look a little bit suspicious. Why would you have this lady's information and especially her birth certificate? I don't know, but we will never know fully 100% what was going on in that man's head. I am glad that he was arrested and I'm glad that at some point he was sentenced to 50 years of probation and all that wound up, the three strikes law and all that stuff wound up working out. Um, Cause yeah, the guy needed to be off the street. I do hope you enjoyed this episode, and if so, as always, please leave a review, a like, a comment, whatever. Every little bit helps. Before I sign off, I do want to give a shout out to our top tier Patreon members, Catherine, Jonathan, and Shelly for supporting the show. And thank you to the show's other Patreon members for supporting as well. If you want to hear your name forever immortalized in audio, then please consider becoming a Patreon member. Membership starts at just a dollar a month and gets you access to extra bonus content, including ad-free episodes, and we all know we hate ads. To do this, go to lightsonpod.com, click the support tab, and then click Patreon. I will also include a link in this show's bio. While you're on the internet, be sure to follow the show's social media and head over to Oracle 3 Network. There you can find my colleagues' shows and all the other goodies that they have to offer. 
I, of course, will also be providing a link in the show's notes. Stay safe and remember, it's scary out there, so leave the lights on. My name is John Lorden, and I've been looking into hundreds of unsolved mysteries over the past five years on my YouTube channel, Lorden Arts. And I've been known to bring a respectful, victim-focused approach to the stories that I cover while donating thousands of dollars directly to those cases and the charities that help them. Now, I'm bringing that approach and sensibility, along with some of the biggest mysteries I've ever looked into and some new ones, to a weekly podcast called Seriously Mysterious. From bizarre occurrences to unsolved murders and unexplainable disappearances, everything is fair game on this show as long as it's seriously mysterious. You can find Seriously Mysterious on your favorite podcatchers or by visiting seriouslymysterious.com. Let's look into the mysterious together. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.